You're listening to a sermon from Iron City Church. For unity, for diversity, for the city, and for the glory of God. Good afternoon, Iron City. Uh, Today is actually my first day back in gathering with other believers on a Sunday afternoon. And so uh, it's pretty amazing. Uh, My my wife and I have a three-month-old at home. And so, you know, uh, pandemic baby thing going on. And so uh, it's been pretty tough and we've been tuning in online, but there's just something special about being in the presence of other believers. Um, it It was awesome. I'm so thankful to be here with you guys to be able to open up God's word with you um, and to celebrate the name of Jesus together. Uh, As we read earlier, we're gonna be in Philippians 2, 19 through 30. I wanna start by first uh, reading a statement that uh, a theologian said of, of this particular text. He said this, here we have a paragraph that does not contain any direct teaching. So in my mind, I'm thinking, well, this is going to be a pretty short sermon, right? So I don't really have anything to teach. Um, But later he goes on, and by the way, I was going to tell, thanks, Dustin and Cam, for giving me such a short, short uh, little paragraph to to preach, and it actually doesn't have anything in there. Um, But really, if you understand the context, it's all about, with this passage, the context in which it is said and what Paul is trying to drive toward. And so... You can go ahead and title this uh, sermon if you would like. It's called Two Ordinary Christians. I thought about coming up with something a lot more hip, and it's something that sounded better, but that's the best I got. So, Two Ordinary Christians. As we have heard, and as we read throughout uh, the rest, and we have a couple more sermons on here, but really looking back over the past several weeks, the church at Philippi seems to be doing pretty, pretty well. Despite having some issues, there was a, a little bit of disagreements going on within the, the leadership of the church and probably within that same kind of standing, there was probably some things going on within the church with even some of the members disagreeing on things. And so while Paul is writing to the Philippians in a very positive manner, we do have this almost repeated urgency, this pleading with them to be together, to be united, to be one. He's writing to the congregation of believers, urging them to be unified in the Lord, having the same mindset that is fixated on the interests of Jesus. But before we jump into Philippians 2, 19, through 30, I want you to flip over with me to Philippians 1, 27 through 30. Philippians 1, 27 through 30, and I want us to read that really quickly, and we're going to have that as kind of the backdrop of Philippians 2, 19 through 30. It says this in verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened by anything by your opponents. 
This is a clear sign to them of, your, of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now I hear that I still have. Honestly, Philippians 2, 19 through 30, even after reading that, let your life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ still kind of seems out of context, kind of disorganized. What do I mean by that? This is what one commentator said. It's a digression of the progression of the text. It's a kind of a, a going off kilter, going off the line of speech. However, its function is not merely to inform the Philippians about Timothy and Epaphroditus, but it sets them forth as godly examples who develop the proposition of 127 through 30 and becomes an illustration of what it looks like to live a manner of life worthy of the gospel of Jesus. In chapter, 20, uh, in chapter 2, 19 through 30, we have Paul laying out for us what it looks like. I'm going to say that one more time. What it looks like when ordinary people live extraordinary Christ-centered lives. Paul is telling the church at Philippi, look at Timothy, look at Epaphroditus. These ordinary Christians truly living it. And to save you and I some suspense and actually me some time, what are these guys doing? They're simply imitations of Jesus. What did Paul call them to be? Imitators of himself, but ultimately what is Paul? An imitator of Jesus. What are they doing? They are imitations of Christ. These men are simply living out daily who Jesus is. It's the characteristic of Jesus seen in these ordinary men that Paul is saying now of Timothy, I have no one, no one like him. And Epaphroditus, you should honor men such as him. You should honor him. My question at that point was why these two? Why did Paul pick these two? Obviously he was in prison. He probably had more people within that area coming to his need. Why does he pick these two in particular to send back to the church at Philippi? Timothy, honestly, you can somewhat understand, right? You can kind of get like, you know, you see Timothy, he's pretty close to Paul. It almost makes sense for Timothy to be the one to go. But then you think Epaphroditus, who is he? Coming out of left field almost, out of thin air, Paul brings up this name Epaphroditus. I'm gonna send Epaphroditus to you. These two will be your living examples of what it looks like to continue to live out the gospel of Jesus. So what I wanna do first is look at Timothy. So we're gonna look at Timothy and it's three characteristics of Timothy 
Three characteristics of Timothy that caused Paul to send him to Philippi. Three characteristics of Timothy that caused Paul to send him to Philippi. Number one, there was no one like him who had a genuine concern for there being the church at Philippi's welfare. There was no one like him who was genuinely concerned with the welfare of the church at Philippi. If you look at, I have no one like him, the translation there on like him is like sold. It, it is closely aligning Paul and Timothy, meaning they have one in the same spirit. They are one in the same. When, you, when he says that Timothy is, has this genuine concern for the church at Philippi, he's saying, Timothy has just the same concern that I do. This deep driving concern and desire to see you live out the gospel, to, be, to remain faithful to the gospel of Jesus despite persecution, trial, heartache. This Timothy is like sold as Paul. It says that this word genuinely concerned actually means anxious, concerned, anxious. That Paul and Timothy are anxious for the welfare of the church. He was concerned. He was anxious. If you flip over to Philippians 4, 6, and you don't necessarily have to flip, I'm going to read, and you already know it. The scripture says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Why the difference? Why do we have in one, one setting Paul saying, do not be anxious, and then Paul in another setting is anxious? He's concerned. Well, it has to come down with what you're anxious about, right? That's where the focus has to lie because he's not, you know, he's not telling himself, do not be anxious. It's saying over here that he is concerned that Timothy and himself and Epaphroditus, they're all concerned and anxious about the welfare of the church at Philippi. I'm someone who struggles with anxiety, and maybe many of you in this room do as well. Anxiety takes a lot of forms, right? It could be daily. It could be, you know, you kind of go in these loops and in these circles. I mean, I would think that a lot of people in 2020 have certainly felt this pressure this anxiety. I mean, it's a, it's a year, right, that we kind of want to forget. You know, you want to look back, and I, I mean, for the most people that I talk to, it's like, man, if we, I mean, that's the old, the old slogan, right? Like, gosh, can we just get through 2020 and just forget it? Many of us have experienced anxiety. We've, we've uh, experienced being concerned about our welfare, There's so many things going on with each one of you in this room. I've got things going on. You've got things going on. You're looking for a job and you're interviewing because you lost your job. You had an argument with somebody because you were frustrated and it was led back to your stress and anxiety. You, I don't know, you are struggling at work. You 
are looking to make friends. You are struggling because you don't have enough money and you're trying to find out where to make the money. You don't have enough money. All of these things are causing anxiety and concern. And I would say for the majority of us, most of us, if not all of us, my anxiety revolves around three three statements. It revolves around I, me, and my. And so often with anxiety and concerns, that's, and even depression and things, a lot of times it does unfortunately make us fix ourselves on our current situation. I feel like in my anxiety at times, I'm in this loop that I can't get out of. There's no, there's no explanation, there's no solution. I just keep going around and around in this loop. There's no, there's no solving it. I just stay in my mind and I'm just almost like I'm staring at a white wall. I'm just, there's nothing going on. I'm in this loop of anxiety. I, me, and my. Most often my anxiety is me-centered. It's focused on what I don't have, what I'm not doing. Could I do better? Words that really translate to the world, the focus of being in the world, the focus on wanting to be something in the world. How often, though, is my anxiety other-centered? How often am I concerned? I heard this word, we were praying back here, and we had a brother that said, I, I, I've been, I had to talk to a friend, and I'm concerned. I'm deeply concerned for him. That was refreshing for me to hear, getting to, about to preach something that honestly, I haven't felt in a while. I am deeply concerned for a brother of mine because he's fallen into some sin and would you please pray for him? I am deeply concerned. What I'm driving toward here is there was two separate anxiety levels, right? Paul is concerned, they're anxious for the church, they're anxious for the church that they would walk in holiness and faithfulness and standing firm. There's another form of anxiousness that causes us to focus on ourselves. And what I believe here is that Paul is calling us, if you see it with Timothy, they are calling us to look unto others. Make your concerns, be concerned more about others than you're concerned for yourself. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider or count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the human likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient unto death, even death on a cross. You see, Timothy's concern wasn't for himself. Paul's concern wasn't for himself. Paul's in prison. His concern is for the people of Philippi. The Christians, the Christian life calls us to this concept this idea of giving up the concerns of ourselves and becoming concerned 
with others. Being other-focused. That's what Jesus did. That was the interest, as we'll see, of Jesus. He's calling us to this. This is the only way to follow Jesus. That's the only way. We are to do unto others. We should think unto others. We should focus on others as we follow in the interest of Jesus. If you look at verse 21, what we understand is Timothy had the interests of Jesus at heart. So that's number two. Timothy had the interests of Jesus at heart. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Timothy was seeking the interests of Jesus. What are the interests of Jesus? Very quickly. If you look at 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So the works that is being done, the life of Jesus is so that we might become the righteousness of God. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power over death, that is the devil, and deliver all those through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So the people who were subject to lifelong slavery, he died to free them from that slavery. You look at John 10.10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. He came to give life. We can go on and on and on of what Jesus is doing. But ultimately, this is the statement I want you to get. The interest of Jesus is the eternal good of the church, which is God's people. The eternal good of the church, which is God's people. If you look at Philippians 1, 14 through 17, I'm gonna read quickly. And most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish, selfish ambition not sincerely, but thinking to inflict me in my imprisonment. And I just thought about so often, if you look back into the Gospels, if you're reading, rereading the Gospels, you see so many times Jesus having to rebuke the Pharisees, taking Scripture, preaching Scripture, having such robust scriptural knowledge, but using it and bending it and contorting it to profit themselves. How often do we do that? I mean, I think about just not just in this room, but how often do we see it in society where scripture is being bent and contorted to, to fall into this category that we want it to fall into, that something that fits our needs, that brings us a profit. Yet how often do we sacrificially bend in service to others? How often do we turn that on its head and be willing to do what it says and serve people the way that God has called us to? Let me add this, without receiving anything in return. Without receiving anything in return. That's no profit. No ROI if for the business people in here. No return on investment. 
being willing to sacrifice and to serve without anything in return. You see, the gospel is the opposite in many ways of Business 101. We are not taking and talking ROI. We are talking about completely emptying the earthly piggy bank. Emptying it out for the sake of others and the interests of Jesus and expecting nothing in return from them. Paul says this in Philippians 2, 17 through 18, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad. 1 Corinthians 10, 24, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Paul's ultimately saying, I'm not seeking my own reward. I am seeking the reward for your sake. I am seeking this for your faith. I am doing this. I am serving you for you, for your faith in Jesus. Timothy's interests were those of Jesus's. To see anyone that would place their faith and trust in Jesus and to see the church of God flourish throughout the world at 0% interest. Nothing to gain except to know and to walk in the way of Jesus. Lastly, Paul sends Timothy because of his proven track record. Philippians 2, verse 21, but you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. You see, Timothy isn't on some summer camp high that, you know, he had an experience and now he's coming back and they're gonna send him. No, he's not, this is not what this is. We know that Timothy is the real deal because he has proven his worth. He's endured persecution. He has been wavering in his service to Paul and to the church and to the gospel, being willing to give his life. He'd been tried in a variety of ways, including persecution. If you look in Philippians chapter one, it talks of, Paul, of, of Timothy being there with Paul in persecution. If you look back in Acts 16, one, Paul or Timothy was with Paul when they first started the church at Philippi. He was in the middle and in, in the midst of persecution, in trial, in difficulty. And yet he endured. His track record is proven. I love this quote by Martin Luther King. It says that the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in comfort, in convenience but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. The true neighbor will risk his position, his prestige, and even his life for the welfare of others. And this model that, he's, that Martin Luther's getting this, this, this quote out of, this text, this person is King Jesus. 
The model is King Jesus, who made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant. Mark 10, 45 says this. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. If the Son of Man, if the Son of Man came to serve and to give his life for the sake of many, then Yeah, you can finish the sentence, right? It's an easy sentence to finish. Then so should we. If the Son of Man did it, so should we. This is what Paul is driving at by using these examples. As one genuinely concerned for the welfare of others, Timothy made himself a slave along with Paul to the mission of taking the gospel into all the world. This was why Timothy was sent, to show them what it looks like when an ordinary person, you and I, live out the gospel as it is intended to to be lived out. Christ-centered life is full of service, sacrifice, and giving without expectation. That's what it is. And I'm going to tell you, I've struggled with that this week because my life a lot of times doesn't look like that. It's been a battle. It's been a back and forth. Epaphroditus. We're going to close in just a second. But I want to follow up with these two points about Epaphroditus. Because of his deep love for the Philippians and his willingness to sacrifice himself for the sake of others, Paul sends Epaphroditus. Because of his deep love for the Philippians and his willingness to sacrifice himself for the sake of others. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker and soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. Wow, that should be like ministering to Paul. Paul's not ministering to Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus is ministering to Paul. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because he heard or you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious." So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Here again, we have Paul highlighting Epaphroditus, who, by the way, let's just be honest, sounds like a a complete G. He's a beast, right? I mean, he's literally ministering to Paul over here. Paul's given these great titles, and we have never heard of this guy. This is the first time we're hearing of this guy and he's dropping these types of characteristics about Epaphroditus. This was a person who was willing to sacrifice everything for the sake of the gospel. And if you look in this text, rather than being distressed that he may be, you know, he may die and, you know, with the fact that he fell ill, You don't hear him calling people to him or saying, hey, somebody come help me. I need the people to get around me. I am really sick. 
Epaphroditus was in distress because he had gotten word that the people of God in Philippi had heard that he was ill. This man, Epaphroditus, loved these people so much that he was concerned about them being concerned for him. Wow, because that ain't me. I'm a terrible sick person. I want you to be concerned about me. I'm not concerned about you being concerned about me. But his love for these people had him being in his sickness, being more concerned about what they heard than the fact that he was actually sick. His concern rose up his own circumstance. This rose over this, his own circumstance. This other-oriented life became greater than his current circumstance. You see, sacrificial love is what Paul is emphasizing. He's drawing us to, the, to this attention to see these actions of Epaphroditus. Later, we also see the same characteristics in Epaphroditus, willing, willingly and willingness to sacrifice his own Comforts instead of going or staying in Philippi, he goes to comfort Paul. He gives up his comforts to go and comfort someone who was in prison. He goes to be by his side, and ultimately, we know in verse 30 for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Brothers and sisters, this is the Christian life. These are examples of the ordinary Christian life, a self-sacrificing love for God and his people, this self-sacrificing is at the very core of Christianity. Jesus says in Mark 8, 34 through 35, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake We'll save it. Christian, the Christian life is very, very much about self-sacrifice. It is committing to risk one's own life in order to find it. It is forfeiting the whole world in order to save it. Forfeiting everything of the world. Losing it. But he who ever loses it, the person that loses it for the sake of Jesus... We'll find it. The bar has been set really high. Jesus himself demonstrated the characteristics that he has called us to, and we are called to imitate it. In 2020, we're called to imitate it. This is not something that we see in just in the church of Philippi, but we are called to be imitators of Jesus in his service to the world and his sacrifice to the world. Paul says in Romans 15:1, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Paul highlights Epaphroditus as one who is truly living sacrificing everything out of love for neighbor and being willing to even die for what Christ himself died for. That is the call. And you know what? As much as that sounds extreme, 
I mean, honestly, reading that and looking, because I mean, that's, that's what I, I literally just wanted, Lord, let me, because I, I kind of bend extreme a little bit. I really do. But if you look at the text and what he is called, what he's saying of these and these illustrations he's drawing out about a Timothy and Epaphroditus, these are extremes. They feel extreme. These guys are giving up their life for the sake of others and the gospel. Their wants, their needs, all for the sake of others and Jesus Christ. In conclusion, I want to confess to you that I have a long way to go. I'm right there with you. When I read this and I'm like, how? There's so much sin in my life. Some seen and unseen. that's hindering my life to being, from being completely absorbed and completely given over to self-service of others and for the sake of the gospel. Many of us in this room need to let go of this idea of being scared of being ordinary. This infatuation with being something other than yourself. Many of us in this room need to let go of feeling scared and wanting to be secure not willing to risk it all. Many of us need to let go of our image. And what that image would look like if people knew that I am sold out for who Jesus is. Many of us need to let go of selfish tendencies so that we can know the joy that comes from sacrificially serving others. We're so focused on ourselves that we don't see that joy truly comes from giving your life up. And you heard it when I was reading through those texts. Anyone who, say, who tries to save his life will lose it. But anybody who loses his life for the sake of Christ will find it. Joy is on the other side. Let go of yourself. And give it to Jesus. And sacrifice your concerns, the me-centered mentality for others. I remember thinking uh, the other day, how many people in here has kids? Do I have a, kids? Kids, raise your hand. Kids, okay. So have y'all had that time? That, that I, that, listen, I, I've only been a parent for two years, right? So I mean, I'm just still learning. I feel like I'm always like lost in this uh, back and forth between loving my kid and being really frustrated. I don't know, like, would he just, you know, like, I wish he would just listen to me or whatever it is. But I was sitting there the other day uh, and watching him play outside and there was this emotion, this heaviness, this extreme feeling of affection. This love that literally just, it was, I truly believe it was the Holy Spirit that was speaking to me in that moment that I would do anything for him. That I would sacrifice my wants, my needs. So that he would know Jesus. I would trade. 
I would do whatever it took for him to know love and beauty and goodness, to thrive. See, I think this is what Paul is getting at when he calls us to love the people of God. Because we think extreme, we, in extremes, but when you feel that emotion, it seems so simple. Because I naturally feel that with my son. There's nothing that has to, I don't, I don't have to get stirred up. I mean, I was literally just watching him run in the, on the road. But this overwhelming sense of self-sacrifice that I would do anything for him. If something happened, I would be so concerned and anxious for his safety. This is what Paul is getting at. This overwhelming sense of love for the body of believers, for the church of God. You see that with Jesus, being willing to sacrifice his life, laying his life down so that we would have life. You see Paul giving every ounce of his life for the sake of the gospel because it wasn't, it wasn't just done out of, out of a, just this obligation. It was done. I mean, we have scripture back in Hebrews that says, for the joy that was set before him. What's that joy? That we may know Christ. That we may know him. Why did Paul sacrifice his life? Because he loved Jesus and through that he loved to love deeply the people of God and wanted everyone to know Jesus, to thrive in Jesus. Paul is not writing a letter to the Philippian church out of some obligation. No, he's writing the letter because he loves them. He wants to see them flourish in Christ. Flip to Philippians 3, 17 through 21, and we close with this. Philippians 3, 17 through 21. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For, as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is their destruction. Can you hear that? Can you hear Paul writing this with tears streaming down his face? Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there. The Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his a glorious body. This is the promise we have in Jesus. And the calling of Paul ultimately is to learn to love each other and strive for that one day to where we will stand together in eternity with the people of God and Jesus Christ.
Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this time. God, I am overwhelmed and so convicted as I study this text, but I also am reminded and stand in joy because I know that my salvation doesn't, re- it doesn't rely on my good works. But God, oh, do I want to walk like Jesus. Do I want to, I want to imitate what you have called us to. God, give us, through your Holy Spirit, a burden, an urgency, a desire, a stirring to live out the Christian life, to learn to love others despite differences or biases for the sake of Jesus in the church of God. Help us, Lord. Help us to follow the foot in the footsteps of Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus, being willing to sacrifice even our lives for the sake of others and them knowing Jesus. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.